This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Praise the Lord forever and ever and ever. Lord, your word is good. Your word is true. It lifts us. It reminds us, inspires us. The same stories and the same verses that we have read again and again. You add to this, these words on pages, you add an anointing that comes from your Holy Spirit this inspiration, this breath of God that comes from the Scriptures. And I pray, Father, as we look at this text today, that the same inspiration that fell upon Matthew as he wrote this Gospel will today fall upon us as we read and study this Gospel to the same intensity, the same clarity, the same truthfulness, the same trustworthiness, as when you spoke it into his heart and he penned it on paper. Glory to your name. Lord, the wonder of inspiration. May we never lose the wonder, the wonder of your mercy, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. This first Sunday of Advent, the title of our sermon, as I mentioned, is Joseph, the chain of bondage is broken. When we look at this text of Scripture, we see within it the phrase regarding a virgin. And there's a lot of discussion about the virginity of Mary. God's choice to have a woman who had never conceived, who was a virgin, never had sexual intercourse with a man, and to use this person very significantly in the birth or the coming of the Messiah. What was the virgin birth a demonstration of? Was it God's power on display? Was it so that God could show that he could do something that was not natural? something that uh, you couldn't find any illustrations in all history of. Uh, does, it bird, does, shoo, almost. does a virgin birth show us that Jesus' birth was a prophetic miracle? You often hear people say everything that was prophesied about this man, Jesus, the Messiah, or everything that was prophesied about the Messiah, Jesus fulfilled. And we think that's, that's just impossible for anybody except him to do. And clearly it is. I mean, the things that he fulfilled are immense. And the timing in which they, they took place. But is this the primary reason? Is this the primary reason for this strange and awesome phenomenon of a virgin birth? No matter what evidence can be produced, no matter what scientific studies can show that it's impossible, the virgin origin of Jesus' birth will never be repeated and it will never be repealed because it is not just some freak thing that happened in nature. 
It is, in fact, a needed birth. It's a needed manner in which Jesus was conceived and birthed. And today we're going to look at this narrative in the context of the visitation to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. And I think that we will come to realize and affirm again the necessity of a virgin birth. It wasn't just so God could show something. It wasn't a sign of something else. It wasn't just a sign. Um, it was, in fact, something that was necessary. You see, Joseph acting in a highly righteous manner toward Mary. We could, we could just make the whole narrative a study of the, the forthrightness and the character and the integrity and the mercy of Joseph. Sometimes we don't see that enough. We kind of think of him as a guy that just you know, played a small role. But in fact, he plays a very significant role. His testimony is significant. His life is significant. The fact that he's married to a virgin person, betrothed to a virgin person. And then the way in which it's revealed to him that this person was pregnant. And next, that it was a unique pregnancy, a special pregnancy. A kind that will fulfill and complete God's plan for his redemptive purposes in the earth through his Messiah. We would see the opening and beginning of a new Adam come to the forefront of history. Only by a virgin birth could God break the chain of sin and the bondage of his people in order to provide redemption for them through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That's a lot of assertions, isn't it? And I hope that by the end of this time, we'll be able to see just how significant this actually is. Well, there's a synoptic parallel, and I, we also look at this. Whenever we read the Gospels, we, we, it's important we know the synoptic parallel because um, synoptic means, you know, the three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and how they're similar. And, um, and they, they are three bodies of literature that are written to three audiences of people. So we see in Matthew writing to the Jewish people, we see Mark writing to the Greek, and, and Luke writing to the Gentile people. Of course, the fourth gospel is John. It's not synoptic, and that doesn't try to follow the same chronological patterns. It doesn't, it doesn't give any, he doesn't have any concern about anything other than just showing that Jesus, who Jesus is, so we might believe in him. So it's a little bit different when it comes to John. But these synoptics, <coughs> sometimes they're filled with, with the Historical context of Jesus, the actual narrative itself, that's the base historical context. Sometimes they reveal the historical context of the writer, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as they're trying to bring the gospel to an audience that they have lived among and feel called to, of God to do it. So there's a lot of similarities, but sometimes within the area of the historical context, I mean, by historical context, the people, places, the, the things that they pick up, you know, the, 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 not rocks, or, but, but sand or foundations against rocks and sand for architecture and things like that. They're trying to show their audience, not by only the historical context of Jesus, because that's, that's often misunderstood. I think today the historical context of Jesus is misunderstood. You know, we think of Jesus coming to um, being in this, in this market study where he's, in, he's among the Gentiles. And I say is the map up there. And we're not really sure where we are until the map goes up. And then suddenly the map goes up and you see a historical context. You see a place. You see a time. And you can describe what it was like then. Who was the king? Well, who, what was uh, Jesus up against when he went up to Tyre and Sidon all the way down into the the region of Caesarea Philippi. And so it, it, it wakens us and broadens us to a context that we can see how the gospel comes forward in those contexts. Imagine if we only had just the simple context of Jesus' time frame. And here is Luke out in Mesopotamia. He's preaching about how you build a house. How do you build a house? Well, you don't build a house on sand, Jesus said. 
You build it on a rock. And the people in that crowd be looking at him like, I don't know where you're building houses, but I have no idea what you're talking about. Building a house on a rock? What kind of rock? A little rock? Big rock? Side of a cliff? You see, you see any cliffs around here in Mesopotamia? see flat land. So as a result, they changed the context. They, they didn't change the words of Jesus. They didn't change the stories, but they changed the context so that the people in Mesopotamia wouldn't understand what, his, what he's talking about. You don't build your house on a rock. You build your house on a foundation, he said. Mark, Matthew says a rock. He says a foundation. And as a result, the people are awakened that you're talking about building a strong foundation under your house, something that you, it'll hold it against the weather and hold it against, um, you know, wind and, and water and so forth. And so we, we see this historical context that these other Gospels bring out to us. Now, I'm sorry if I sound like I'm going into too much detail in those things, but I, but I think sometimes the repetition of that idea of historical context eventually kind of awakens us to it, where when we're reading our Bible at home, we just, just may say, you know what, I think in the back of my Bible, do this with me, in the back of your Bible, look in the back of your Bible, there's these funny things with pictures. What are they called? Maps. And then if you have a study Bible, you see in, in, in front of that, you see a concordance. And in some study Bibles, you even have reference notes that tell you things about the historical context of things that you're reading. This is called exegesis. This is called studying the Bible carefully. Not just studying it say, well, you know, I feel a certain way today. So I'm going to just start reading the Bible until I see if I find something that kind of identifies how I feel right now. And so we, we have even have some help. We can go to a bookstore and get this thing called the Counselor's Bible. And so you look at the Counselor's Bible, and it doesn't look like a regular Bible. It's a Bible that has a glossary of terms, sometimes up to 1,000, you know, 500 terms in it, and it says, feeling sad, it gives you four references. Feeling glad, there's 30 references. Just stole something, there's several references. Overwhelming by life, there's a few other references. And so we say, how do I feel today? Well, let's see. Well, I feel like that. Not so much, so much like that. It's like this, like this, like this. But I really feel like that. So you turn there and, you know, you read about how you feel. You think that's the Bible's message at that point? Then the Bible's message is how you feel today and how we can identify, the Bible can somehow find a way to identify with your feelings. No, the Bible has its own message. So we want to know what the Bible's message is. And so as a result, this idea of historical context is very important. Of course, we'll, if we want to, we can just launch out into literary context, into theological context we want to right now. That would be very helpful also. But uh, alas, I have glasses now, so I don't have to just talk and talk and talk. <laughs> they, they clean up pretty nice too, Dion, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So we see this in Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of God. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? I just parenthetically notice Zechariah, early in this, in this text, Zechariah's response earlier to the news from Gabriel, Zechariah asked the angels, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. 
Basically, we see the difference is that Mary wanted to know how this was going to happen. More information. Tell me more. Since I'm a virgin, how is this going to happen? Not saying I don't believe it. I just want to know how it's going to happen. Zachariah, on the other hand, questioned the angel. He questioned him. As if to say, come on, I'm, I'm an old guy. This, this can't happen. I really need a little, I need, I need some other evidence to this. And so the evidence was, as you remember, Gabriel kind of, got a little irritated with him and said, I'm going to paraphrase, you stupid blind person. You can't see what I see, but I am standing in the presence of God. I'm not, this is, God didn't send me from a million miles away. I am standing in the presence of God. Isn't that enough for you? It's enough for me. When my master, I'm going to stand in his presence. He gives me something. I, I believe him. Well, he didn't seem to respond to that very well, and so he struck him dumb for the complete time of Elizabeth's pregnancy. But, I, I've, you know, people always say, well, how come Zachariah and Mary didn't, how come he didn't strike Mary with, you know, blindness or something? And that's primarily why. So since we're going through this, I thought I'd just comb through that part too at the same time. Fair? Okay. The angel answered to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come on you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who, and, and she who was said to be, to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the servant of the Lord, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Now that is Luke's gospel. As we're here in Matthew's gospel, in verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Now note in the Hebrew culture of Jesus' day, there were three stages of marriage relationships the first stage was engagement. This was sealed often by parents of the bride and groom. Often the arrangements were made while the men and women were still small children. It could be also arranged by an older man who had no children wanting to have a wife. And so often there would be some distance in age between the woman and the man because he wanted to have a wife, and so he made arrangements to marry. And he would then, of course, enrich her family. It's typically a person who was wealthy. And you see that like Boaz. Boaz was a next kinsman. And so as he, he um, covered um, his, his, um, his brother's wife who had died. And so we see this betrothal period um, did not allow for sexual consummation to take place. If either of the two died in the States, they would take on a widow or widower status. So it was a very serious period, but it was also a period of preparation, a period of waiting. And you can see why in a, in a child-arranged marriage, um, which still takes place today, large, largely outside of the United States, but it still takes place today. Um, I know my mother had me lined up for, you know, I don't know how many women until she saw that woman. <laughs> that was the end of all that. Well, maybe he'll marry a good woman and she'll straighten him out. And uh, that's precisely what happened. And that's the, uh, the first stage. Second stage was called the betrothal. The betrothal period was entered into by a, an adult or a mature bride and a mature groom as, consulting, as, as consenting adults. It was normally a one-year period and absolutely binding upon the two, legally, lawfully. Well, again, no, no sexual consummation could take place. If either of the two died, again, there was this widow or status. status. Um, third stage. So we have the engagement, we have the betrothal, and we have the marriage. And the marriage was the last stage. And the marriage was the binding of the two together. And also it, it was accompanied by a celebration that included all the people in the person's homes. And, and it was a large celebration. It was a that's when they had the tent and they broke the glass and all that stuff, you know. So it was a, 
was a community event. In this community event, vows were made and uh, received, and the person that after that, they lived as husband and wife. So clearly, Mary and Joseph had entered the betrothal stage of their relationship. Understood in the language, Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, as we see there in the 18th verse. Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, before they had moved on into the marital ceremonial stage, it was discovered that Mary was with child. Now, Matthew puts in the phrase, through the Holy Spirit. But, you know, one of the things I was, I was debating on doing was trying to p- put these pieces together so that we would have the same sense of surprise that everyone else seems to have as this continues on. Before they came together, she was found to be with child. Now we learn later it's through the Holy Spirit. The phrase clearly refers to a sexual union between options here. Option one, Joseph and Mary. Well, we learn from the text, learn from Joseph, that had not taken place. In fact, the text tells it has not taken place. But the assumption was that it had been someone else that had impregnated her. Women don't just have babies, right? And if you ever find yourself in a dilemma and you get pregnant, the Holy Spirit did this is not a great answer. As much as everybody would like to think that's the case, that's not something that's... Ex- it's just, you know, every, it's one in 500,000 women have, get pregnant without having sex. Um, it's just, in fact, it's just the opposite. Every one of the 500,000 women that get pregnant, they've had sex. It's, it's just a, it's 0% that find themselves in the other category. And so there's an assumption that either it was Joseph and Mary that already had sex, or, as we find out from Joseph, it was somebody else and Mary that had had sex. Because when it says she was found with child, this is clearly, if we look at the context of this, this, um, this text, it's him discovering this. He's discovered that she's with child. No one else knows she's with child. He's dis- discovered this. So as a result, um, he has some thinking through things to take place. This is what we now know that it was through the Holy Spirit. But not what Joseph knew then. In the section above with Luke's Gospel, we see the full description of the visitation of Mary by the angel Gabriel. That, that's called synoptic context. That helps a little bit, doesn't it? We see that synoptic context. We are way ahead of the game. However, at this point in time in history, Joseph is way behind And so he's a man with a problem, a man with a dilemma, a man who's having his heart broken. It's hard to know exactly what range of emotions he had. You can't just assume, well, you know, he was such a godly guy, it didn't really matter to him if his wife was pregnant, and it wasn't him. So these were serious people. These were godly people. Mary was a godly person from a godly family, Joseph the same. And as a result, this is a huge crisis that's coming in to his and her life. Now, again, it's his life because she already knows why this has happened. But it's coming into Joseph's life. And as a result, he is in a great quandary of what, what he should do. It says in verse 19, but because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now notice a couple things. Being called her husband because they're betrothed. That's why they're being called her husband. But he was a righteous man. And he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. What a deadly combination. Mary would receive, if exposed, public condemnation because she was pregnant outside of marriage, whether the father was Joseph or not. If it was Joseph, she would be condemned. If it was not Joseph and someone else, then there would be condemned. Mary would receive Joseph's condemnation 
because he knew he was not the father of the child. And Joseph would receive public and private humiliation, possibly public condemnation, because he was betrothed to a pregnant woman, supposed by everyone to be him, not yet to learn that it was not him, but he would receive private condemnation because Mary had betrayed him with another lover. This is breaking his heart. I mean, there's just no way to look at this like he's just some super guy, you know, with a... No, it's breaking his heart. He's under great turmoil as a result of this. And perhaps it's someone that she still loves. And on top of all this, this was a humiliation that would follow Joseph for his whole life. And very likely in that community where they would live for their whole life and did. They were in Nazareth. They lived there their whole life. And, and even, you know, later on we see this we see this time when Jesus goes to his hometown, remember? And he, they're wanting to see him do a miracle. And so he doesn't do a miracle. And his own family is, is identified, Mary, the son, daughters of Mary and Joseph, and Jesus soon to be also the son of Joseph, the older son of Joseph, the carpenter's son, as it said, And the humiliation was still going on. Because they didn't identify Jesus. They called him Mary's son. Even after those years, many years later, 30 years later, he's still being identified in his own hometown as Mary's son. That that kind of a strange beginning. Remember it? And they talked about, you know, somehow she's pregnant, but in, in... it's really kind of a quirky time. Remember it? You remember it? Nazareth residence? You know what I mean? Just, it was this moment. When it, and so the humiliation goes on. You know, like, almost like saying, Jesus, the bastard of Mary. We see this as a time of possible it's disgrace. And even when it was revealed, it still had a sense of disgrace with it. But because he was a righteous man and he did not want her to have, be, have public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. What, what does that say to you about him? This guy loves this lady, right? This guy loves her. He, he's not willing just to save himself. Look at this prostitute having a baby. It wasn't my baby. Could have said that. Honestly, it wasn't my baby. Because you know what? It wasn't his baby. He wasn't the father. He wasn't the biological father. And so as a result, he he schemed. He starts scheming about this. This this phrase, he had in mind, it brings with it the the deep struggle that he's in. The phrase brings to light how Joseph struggled deeply with the dilemma he faced and after much consideration came to a state of mind and action. He was brokenhearted, betrayed, and likely had gone through a period of even anger. Can't imagine not. And what was the final disposition? Well, I'm going to allow her family to, to save face. I'm going to allow her to save face. And I'm going to save face with my family. We're going to save face. And we're going to go through the whole process. We're going to get married. And then sometime later, let her have her baby. Which, amazingly, who was responsible for the baby she was going to have? Joseph. He was going to be the person who had to provide for that baby. And then afterwards, he was going to let a little bit of his rage, disappointment, betrayal, just... Divorce her quietly. Give it a few years and just divorce her quietly. What a plan. Trying to find the best path of preservation. It's the human, the human work of things. Let's figure it out. Let's figure it out. We see a glimpse of grace and mercy emerging in the person of Joseph. This first shows us the character of Joseph, who would be the earthly father of Jesus. Love is victorious. Even love, where God's general revelation is poured out, you see remarkable things take place in the human race because of God's love poured out. 
he is deeply in love with Mary. He's wanting to protect Mary from public scandal and possibly even her personal life. At this time in history, it was still appropriate and often exercised to stone a woman in this condition. It was a massive violation of the law and of the public trust. And we see them right in the midst of it. Joseph's considerations demonstrate that there is a love that is greater than pride greater than preservation. And so it says in verse 20. What's the first word in verse 20? You with me, everybody? What's the first word in verse 20? But, but, after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph's plans were set come to a, I mean, a remarkable position on this. A preservation of a woman and her life and a family and his family. A, a great idea. What could be better than this? What could make this work out any better? This was Joseph's plan. As the proverb says in 16.9, in the hearts humans plan this cor- their course but the Lord establishes their steps. I mean, we shouldn't get counsel and work it all out. We see in this plan that God has a greater plan. There's something that's happening here that is necessary. Is this really necessary that God would humiliate them like this? Is this really necessary? Yes, something is necessary is going on. After he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to make Mary, to take Mary home as your wife. You know, we didn't say afraid, did we? This guy's living in great fear. He's fearing for her life. He's fearing for his reputation. He's fearing for her family's life. He's fearing for his family's life. His fear, he has this fear that says, don't be afraid. Take her home as your wife. He noticed that the angel spoke first to Joseph's personal need. The need for assurance that he had not been betrayed. Hmm. To think that you have been betrayed and every evidence that you can look at is so obvious as this is what the truth is. And then to hear the voice of God say, don't be afraid. You haven't been betrayed. Take her home. Take her home as your wife. She hasn't been with another man. In fact, she was still a virgin. (laughs) He had no need to take any actions other than what he had already planned. His life could be normal again prior to the plans they had, the joyful plans they had for, for their wedding ceremonies. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. Of note, you are to give him the name Jesus. You name him Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. Now, just in a second's time, we see a recalculation of everything we've seen so far. A plan greater than Joseph's mercy towards Mary is coming about. The father of the child is the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the child will have a position. There will be a firstborn, there will be an heir. He will have identity in his community. He will be the firstborn, the heir. Secondly, he will have a name. The father named the child in Jewish tradition, not Joseph's name, but God's name, Jesus, the Greek form of Joshua, which means what? The Lord saves. What a name! 
He's coming as a person who's going to save with a name of a person who's coming to save. He himself is the salvation that's coming. And he will have a destiny to save his people from their sins. Isn't this the hope of every parent? Isn't this the hope when you have children? That they will be a proper heir. They will be, it'll be, it'll be real, it'll be authentic, be valid and pure. That they'll have a position. We don't know what that position will be, but we hope that they'll build and they'll take on the world and whatever it is that God has called them to take on in that world. They'll have a name, a name that is trustworthy, it has, a, has generational qualities to it. And they'll have a destiny. All these things are accomplished and eternally more, infinitely more in this particular child. You will give him she will give birth to a son and he and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22, all this took place. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. Joseph is the first recipient of the revelation of the incarnate Christ who will save his people by breaking the bondage of original sin. That's a big, that's a big idea, right? It's a big idea. As a result of Adam's rebellion, in the garden, Adam was born innocent. Adam was born without sin. Adam was born without a nature of sin. And he was placed in the garden. And, of course, Eve was the first one tempted, but Adam followed right with her. And because of that, it's said in the day that this takes place, this is what Satan said, your eyes will be open. And you will realize, you'll realize, and of course what we, they realized was abundant, many things. They realized they were naked. They realized that they were afraid. They realized they were guilty. And suddenly the nature of sin started forming the nature of that person, Adam and Eve. Informed them about everything. God's coming into the garden this morning. Let's hide. Why? Because they're afraid. Because they've broken the commandment. They haven't kept the, the covenant. Well, where should we hide? Why should we hide? Because we're naked. Who told you we're naked? We thought you'd be angry with us. And so we see the, the nature of sin literally come into the human experience. And that nature of innocence and sinlessness just Produce, start producing sin after sin after sin after sin. And so this nature of sin produced sins from that nature. <clears throat> we don't see it stop with Adam and Eve, of course, do we? What's the first thing you see Cain and Abel doing? Very first thing. They're going and making sacrifices. They're making sacrifices. And one of them killed the other. One of them was bellowed. And he created a whole nation of reprobate sin. We see this Nature of man tumbling, starting to tumble from generation to generation with the sin of our, of our ancient parents. In the same way as Roger talked this morning about the imputed righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, the sin of Adam was imputed to us. The nature of sin. We don't need Adam to teach us how to sin. We just need the nature to change. And so that we, our nature, our sin nature, knows exactly how to sin. So it's not the sins of Adam, but it was the sin nature of Adam that has been imputed to us. And so we're born with it. Well, Adam had a stark, unique difference between the old and the new. He's still in the Garden of Eden. He sees these things and he knows he's, not, he's broken everything about it. He's kicked out of the garden. So he's a memory of the garden. 
Well, not us. We're born. We think that we're just everything. We're pulling ourselves up by our suit brute staffs. We're human. We're natural. We're way ahead of the game. Oh, look at my child scores way outside the scale of, you know, everything. Oh, they're brilliant. This child's brilliant. And we've heard that over and over again just recently. Look how brilliant she is. Look how brilliant. Oh, she's brilliant. I see other parents. And I think they're saying, she's brilliant. I'm thinking, well, she's, she's kind of brilliant. <laughs> You know, my kids are obviously brilliant. You know what I mean? There's this idea that we've identified this nature of sin and we've kind of jumped over the sin part to the human part. But it rolls on and on and on and it forms both our identity and our children's identity. It's not just learned behavior. You don't have to teach an infant how to sin as they grow. They, they, their nature presses us out of them. You know, when you open that toothpaste tube in the morning... What, what happens to the toothpaste when you squeeze it? It comes out of there, right? You don't sit there and squeeze and squeeze. How do I get, could you help me get this toothpaste out? Well, Chris, we have, we've put that to a new level in our house. Get the toothpaste out. We cut the back off, squeeze around, we're going to get it all out of there. But, <laughs> but typically, the item, you, let's do a different one. You push the, because we, we, we did this Thursday, right? Pumpkin pie has to have what on it? <laughs> <laughs> You push that hit, you hit that thing, what happens? Out comes the Cool Whip. Okay? That can knows exactly how to produce that. All you got to do is just push a little bit, and it comes right out. Sin comes out of a sin nature. So as a result, we see this sin nature. It's advancing generation after generation after generation after generation until we come to a man named Joseph, a righteous man. A good man, but a man with a sin nature who is betrothed to a virgin who has never had sexual intercourse with any man. She's never been pregnant. And Joseph didn't just get a little cleaned up kind of a genetic moment where he was producing non-transmitting sin. Yeah, yeah, I'm almost finished. Give me a break. Go away. <laughs> How do I turn this off? I don't trust this. I'm going to my back pocket. Yeah, where was I? So I was over here, right? <laughs> In this thought. He was the problem. God had a plan in place that's coming about, and Joseph is the next problem with his plan. It's going to take more than just a good man. God doesn't take just good men and good women because you're good. You're, you're, you have almost all the commandments mastered, but just have that one, right? Or two. Give me, come on. I'm really sorry. I turned this off, I thought. So please turn your cell phones off before you come into the sermon. Okay, let's just see if we can't shut this whole stupid finagle. Okay, we won't get through now. Don't look at me. <laughs> so again, what, here's Joseph, right? He's the problem. Why is he a problem? Because he has a sin nature that's been imputed to him, and his body just wants so much to impute this to his kids. God's plan is not just to have for Joseph to have another child. God is enacting a plan to save his people from their sins. To save them. To do something for them they can't do for themselves. And so Joseph does not have sexual intercourse with Mary. She is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And what is born of her is a man with no sin nature. And more than that, he's also born and the second member of the Trinity, according to John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, the Word of God dwells with him in that person, in that, in that body. So he is called then both God and man. Sinless man is on the scene in Jesus Christ. And why would God just need a sinless man? 
Because God's going to sacrifice that sinless man on the cross so that our sins can be imputed to Him and His righteousness can be imputed to us. It's a mandate. God just can't remit sins. Islam says, God's strong. He's powerful. He can just do whatever He wants. He can remit sins if He wants. You just tell the person, I like you. you know, don't worry about your sins. God can't do that because He's also holy. He's also righteous. He must be holy. He must be righteous. He must be just. And a just judge doesn't remit sins. They must be paid for. And so the whole plan of redemption hinges on this event that must take place. This is truly an Advent event. It's the coming event. It came and it seemed like it happened in ordinary ways through people who just can't stop themselves from having sex. So they got, had sex and, you know, she got pregnant. But he's a righteous man. The family's not, you know, she's a, just, just cover it up if you can. God doesn't want to cover this one up, everybody. He wants us to shout it from the housetops that God has come and made a way for you and I to be a part of his kingdom, to be a part of his redemptive plan. Because Joseph was not Jesus' father, this chain of sin was broken and Jesus was born the second Adam. Without a sin nature, Jesus was born of God, as the angel had said. He was holy man, and according to John, he was holy God. The second member of the triune God shared his human nature. Therefore, he was holy man and holy God, the incarnate one. He worked in the life of Joseph and Mary. Just as an observation, Joseph discovered that he was also identified by Isaiah hundreds of years before in this prophecy. When this prophecy was fulfilled, What's it? the virgin will be with child and will be and and the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. Now remember what said in verse 21. She will, be, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Who's the they and who's the them? <laughs> you are to give him the name of Jesus, and they will give him the name of Jesus. And, and who are they? The virgin Joseph will call him Emmanuel. I say it was talking about Joseph in that verse 400 years before. What a dream to wake up to. Now that's a dream, right? You ever had those kind of dreams when everything seemed to be bad and you had a dream that everything was good and you woke up and it's still bad? This is when everything's bad. And he has a dream about how everything's going to work out for good and he wakes up and it really is good. When he woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had communicated to him and took Mary home as his wife but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him, he gave him the name Jesus. This verse gives rest to the tradition, I wouldn't even call it a doctrine, but the tradition of perpetual virginity within Mary. It's a doctrine. It's in, a, it's in the canons of some churches. That Mary is a perpetual virgin. That all of her, she only had Jesus, no other kids, and she was a virgin for the rest of her life. She would later go on to have many other children. Notice, she and Joseph had sexual intercourse after Jesus was born. It says it right there in the scriptures. Obviously ones who did not share in the unique conception like the birth of Jesus. They were, they were 
ordinary people. In fact, they had a very defined sin nature that's identified in the Scriptures. You see that in Matthew 13, verse 54 and 55. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? This man. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? See that, that sarcastic, accusing, I think I know something kind of language? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Does it sound like a virgin? It's not like a virgin to me. Obviously, these were not children without a sin nature either. She and Joseph were an ordinary human couple who played a very valuable, necessary, mandated position in redemptive history. But the main character is Jesus. The one who is raised and nurtured by them. Jesus, the one who would save his people from their sins. So we see the birth of Jesus isn't just God showing his power off. It's not just so that prophecies can be fulfilled. To think that a man would love a woman so much to protect her and, and, and her character to the possible shame and harm of his own reputation. This is God's work in and through Joseph. The birth of a Savior by a virgin mother is not simply a test of God's power or of prophetic accuracy, but a necessary break in the chain of the sin nature of men. Jesus was indeed the most unique man ever born, not only in his humanity, without sin nature, but in his divinity because he was born of God and shared his human nature with the Word of God. What a glorious gospel. Lord, awaken us in this Advent season to Advent, the coming of the one and only sent from the Father. The one and only. No one ever was like Jesus. No one ever was like Him. No one ever had His nature. No one ever had His character. No one ever had His accompaniment, His unity with the Godhead. And Lord, thank You. As Martin has said this morning, we give You thanks that you've revealed this to us by your word and by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen.